From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Emily Arnson. This is your news for Wednesday, July 5th. Today, we're talking about one of summer's nighttime wonders, fireflies. Until recently, a lot of people, including scientists, thought fireflies only lived east of the Rockies. But a citizen science initiative called the Western Firefly Project is debunking that myth. They ask people across the West to document firefly sightings. And in Utah alone, they've discovered that fireflies live in at least 27 of the state's 29 counties, including Grand County. Entomology is super exciting because there's so much about insects that we don't know in the world. Christy Bills is the director of the Western Firefly Project, as well as the invertebrates collection manager at the Natural History Museum of Utah. But I never suspected there was something as charismatic and wonderful right in Utah's backyard. Why did people think we didn't have fireflies in Utah? Utah is a super recreational state. People spend a lot of time outdoors. However, people don't spend a lot of time recreating in marshy areas, which is where fireflies usually are. When we recreate, we're usually out in the desert or we're in, in our tents after 10 o'clock at night, you know, so we're usually not looking in the right place. People who do see fireflies sometimes have misconceptions about where they came from. So occasionally some people will say, oh, they're new to the state, but they're absolutely not new. Or they'll think that they brought a jar from Kansas or Missouri, like in the 1960s, and that their family brought the whole population of fireflies throughout the state. But actually, that's not true. They've been here all along. When Bill started the project 10 years ago, they had only heard of three or four firefly populations in the state. But they only only flash for about six weeks. And so it's impossible for the small team of entomologists to go find them during that short time. So we turned it into a citizen science project and asked people to tell us where they were. And then when people started telling us, it was fascinating. It turned out that they were in at least 27 of the 29 counties, especially in wetter counties like Summit, Cache County, there's a ton in Utah County right in the middle of the state. And there's actually multiple populations in Moab. So there are multiple different types of species here? So mostly throughout the state, we believe there's one predominant species. However, Moab is weird. (laughs) You guys know you're special. You know. (laughs) The two specimens, which were the only ones we've been able to collect from Moab, were different than all the other ones that we've collected throughout Utah. So they're a different genus. And um, despite having other people try and re-find populations in Moab, we haven't been able to collect them again. In Moab, they've found specimens at Grand Staff Canyon and Old City Park. Bills encourages people to spend time near marshy areas after 10 p.m. for a chance to see them. And something you said earlier was that people have a false assumption that fireflies were introduced to Utah? And you said that's not true, but how do you know that's not true? Luckily, we have one person who has a farm in Spanish Fork, and her family has had that farm for about four or five generations. And the knowledge has been passed down from person to person. So um, she knows that there have been fireflies on her property all of this time. So that's one way that we know. Another way is that we do think that the firefly um, that we're seeing most commonly throughout Utah is different enough from the ones back east that is potentially a different species. I'm not absolutely positive. We're still doing work on that. And there's no way that it could have been introduced and then spread throughout the entire state just because they kind of suck at flying. (laughs) 
Why do you think it's important to document the fireflies in Utah? I have strong feelings about this, as I'm glad you asked. They may not be the very most important species in the world. They may not be like a wolf that they are a keystone species that's holding the whole ecology together. But they are present where there's water and they are a source of wonder for people. And they're so exciting for people to see. And a lot of times people will contact me and they'll say they are so, so special to me. And I love them so much. And I want my children to see them. And I want my friends to see them. And I want my grandchildren to see them. And when people realize there's something right in our backyard that is so, so magical, I think it engenders a sense of stewardship and wonder. And it makes people fall more in love with what we have here and makes people feel even more in love with our own land and want to protect it. And sometimes wetlands don't get quite the same sense of love because you can't march into it. You know, it's not the grandeur of Zion. But anything we can do to make people feel a sense of protection and love and magic for our very own backyard, I think that that's worthy of our notice and our attention. For more information about the Western Firefly Project, check out today's show notes. Bears Ears was designated as a national monument by the Obama administration in 2016. Since then, natural resource developers, conservationists, and tribal interests have waged numerous legal fights over the monument. In an attempt to compromise, the Biden administration recently brokered a land swap settlement in the state of Utah. This is Clark Adamitis of KSUT and KSJD. The deal trades a checkerboard of lands inside and around the Bears Ears National Monument for lands in Lisbon Valley, Utah, which is rich in uranium, lithium, and oil and gas reserves. Bears Ears is a 1.3 million acre national monument in southeastern Utah. I do have to say that this land swap is actually probably one of the very first land swaps that have had great conversation, especially with tribes. Regina Lopez Whiteskunk is a Ute Mountain Ute tribal member who has been advocating for conservation of the Bears Ears region for decades. She says while the land swap is a good thing, the ongoing fight over Bears Ears continues. And she says tribes have had to make some concessions. We have to accept the fact that recreation is going to be a part of these spaces. Those of us that access these lands in a traditional and cultural way, I think we, we just have to find that sweet spot that we're all able to be able to continue to access these spaces. Meanwhile, the state of Utah is still suing the Biden administration in an effort to shrink the size of Bears Ears National Monument. The Hopi tribe, the Navajo Nation, the Pueblo of Zuni, and the Ute Mountain Ute tribe are all intervening defendants in that case. I'm Clark Adamitis. Last month, United States Senators Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper of Colorado wrote a letter requesting a hearing for their Dolores River Conservation Area Bill in the Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources. Chris Clements of KSJD has more. The committee has agreed to hold a hearing on the legislation during their next meeting on July 12th. The bill would protect 68,000 acres of public lands along the river in southwest Colorado. But now, in addition to the NCA Act, community organizations that advocate on behalf of the Dolores River are discussing the idea of President Joseph Biden designating some areas not covered by the bill as a national monument. Rika Fulton is the Advocacy and Stewardship Director for the Dolores River Boating Advocates. So there's some effort by conservation organizations and some other local stakeholders, businesses um, that are starting to have conversations and build support for protections. And 
and I think an important part of the National Monument piece is also working with tribal nations, especially the three Ute tribes, since that is uh, the Dolores country is their ancestral homeland. Bennett took a three-day trip down the Dolores River on June 10th, meeting with commissioners, tribal members, ranchers, and other members of the community to discuss the legislation. I'm Chris Clements. In early June, the Biden administration placed a moratorium on new oil and gas leasing within a 10-mile radius of Chaco Canyon National Park. The moratorium is part of an effort to preserve historical sites built centuries ago by ancestral Puebloan people. Clark Edomitis of KSUT and KSJD reports that Navajo people who own land inside the buffer zone are split over the decision. Can you smell that stuff coming out? <laughs> I'm standing with Mario Atencio, a Navajo man just a few miles from Chaco Canyon. He's showing me the pipe from an oil well that failed, spewing crude oil and water all over the ground. 53,000 gallons of produced water and crude oil busted out of here. Atencio is an environmental activist who lives in Counselor, New Mexico, and he owns an allotment here, 160 acres that the federal government gave to his grandmother in the 1930s. My grandma used to have sheep out here for almost 60 years. Mario Atencio is part of a group of Navajo people pushing to protect the landscape around Chaco Canyon. Daniel So, a Navajo elder, is also here with us. The air, the water, the air has no balance. So says he's worried about environmental devastation here. The folks that graze along there basically could be getting their animals contaminated. Last month, when U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Holland approved a moratorium on new oil and gas leases in the region, these two men rejoiced. So and Atencio say the Navajo are descendants of the people who lived in and around Chaco Canyon centuries ago. So the ban, they say, is culturally important. It helps us retain the sacred areas, sacred spaces. It helps us to have access to practice our way of belief. There's secret, secret Navajo stuff. We're driving on top of the sacred mesa right now. The story of Navajo allotment lands is a complicated one. Navajo people lived on this land intermittently over the past few centuries. They were forcibly removed in the 1800s, then allowed to return. Eventually, some lands were allotted to tribal members in 160-acre parcels. While Alatis own their lands, allotments are held in trust by the Federal Bureau of Indian Affairs. That federal agency oversees leasing for oil and gas development on allotment lands and takes a cut of the royalties. Anything that is below that allotment land belongs to the Indian people. The United States for the longest time would not admit that the Indian people owned those minerals. Irvin Chavez is the chapter president in the Nagizi chapter of the Navajo Nation, just 30 miles from Chaco Canyon. Chavez is part of a group of Alatis who opposes the new ban on leasing. Uh, you will never be a billionaire on oil and gas revenues. If you have something that it's under your land, in your land, and you can live off or make money or raise your family and send them to school, you would use it. The Biden administration only banned new leasing on federal land in the region. Alatis can still legally lease their land for development. But Chavez and other opponents say the ban will kill the oil and gas economy here because companies won't build infrastructure without federal lands on the table, too. 
You will not find a company that will spend that kind of money to do that. They would go elsewhere. This area is going to be abandoned eventually. Chavez has some powerful allies. The Navajo Nation Council and President Boo Nigren have publicly opposed the ban. We call it land grab. Danny Simpson represents the Nagizi chapter and the Navajo Nation Council. He says the drilling moratorium was pushed by Pueblo tribes. These tribes are descendants of the people who built Chaco, but who are now located far from here. The Pueblo says they have ties to this land, and that's why they want to have a lot of say on how things are developed in these areas. Simpson says the Navajo Nation intends to pursue legal action against the Biden administration. Definitely it's going to happen. Uh, there's going to be a lawsuit filed by Navajo Nation, but it's going to be done pretty quickly. Simpson offered no details on the legal argument the tribe will make in court if and when it files a lawsuit. I'm Clark Adamitis. And that's the KZMU News for Wednesday, July 5th. Get your community-powered journalism weekdays on the airwaves at noon and 6 p.m. You can also find KZMU News anytime online at kzmu.org or wherever you listen to podcasts.